In our creed we've just affirmed together, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And it's been wonderful to sing that together with you and read scripture passages about that together today. And now we will hear God's word for, on that theme as well from Luke chapter 7, the last passage of Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. We're in a large section in this book in which Luke is essentially answering the question over and over again and in lots of different ways, who is Jesus? And essentially, we could say the whole book of Luke is seeking to answer that question, just as uh, all of the Gospels really are answering that question in one way or another. But the basic answer Luke gives over and over again is that Jesus, the Messiah, fulfills God's plan by seeking and saving the lost. Jesus, the Messiah, fulfills God's plan by seeking and saving the lost. And so last week we saw... Followers of John the Baptist, two weeks ago obviously, but last passage, we saw followers of John the Baptist asking Jesus if he was the long-expected Messiah who came to fulfill God's plan, and he gave proof that he indeed was. Remember, he was saying, look, people are being uh, raised from the dead. People are being healed from their sicknesses. People are um, uh, being, uh, lepers are are being healed, and uh, lame are are walking, and the deaf hear, and the blind see. And yes, so obviously these are proofs that I am the Messiah, he was saying. And the passage then showed a contrast of ways you could respond to that truth. You could either reject him, as some in the story did, or you could agree with God, declare him just, was the the language of the passage previously in chapter 7. And today's passage is essentially giving us more examples Uh, really two examples of people who are choosing whether to agree with God about their sin and about who Jesus is or choosing to reject him and choosing to uh, really deny God's God's purpose for their uh, lives as the language of chapter 7 says. And so in, in one case, a woman says, God is right about my sin and has been merciful toward me, so I will express extravagant gratitude toward him. And in another case in our passage, a Pharisee says, you know, upon closer inspection, I declare him to be lacking. I declare Jesus to be lacking, so I reject him. And all those who reject God and his anointed will face judgment. This is the message of the whole Bible. This is the message of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. You kiss the Son, lest you fall under God's wrath. And all those in desperation who believe in Jesus as the uh, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, those are forgiven of their sin. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. We've just affirmed together. And these people then live in God's peace. So let me read chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Please follow along as I read. And if you have a copy of the Bible, if not, uh, we have some available on the table for you. We'd love for you to take one of those Bibles when we're finished today. Chapter 7 of Luke, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of man this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii 
and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Long before he was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Winston Churchill uh, was a young war correspondent during the Boer War, really known as the Second Boer War, from about 1899 to 1902. Early on in the war, though, he was captured, Winston Churchill was captured uh, after a train accident, after the Boers attacked uh, the British military, and again, he was with the British trying to write news stories to send back to London and so forth, and was taken uh, captive and brought to a prison camp where he spent uh, quite a bit of time, and over that course of time developed a few friends uh, there of other prisoners, with other prisoners, and these prisoners, Churchill and a few others, began to devise a scheme by which they could escape. Because in his mind, being in prison was the worst thing you could possibly imagine. And I doubt anybody in prison would dispute that. But what he was experiencing was just having one day be exactly the same as the day before and just how torturous this was to him. And so he thought, it's going to be worth it even if I get caught to try and escape from here. So he and these other Prisoners began devising plans of where they would escape from and what time of day they would do it and what the exact circumstances would have to be with the prison guards. And they figured out this plan, and eventually one night they were just about to do it, and the guards just would not move the way they had been moving every other night. And so they decided we've got to do it another day. And so they gave up their plan, went to bed, and it was a great relief to Churchill because he realized if we had done that, it would have been a really big deal, and I don't know if I'm ready to do this. The next night came and he realized, I've got to do it. I had all the adrenaline last night. I'm ready to do it. We have the plan. I don't care if these other guys are going to do it or not. And in fact, they were not on board with it that day. But he said, I'm going to try again. And so the circumstances aligned themselves just right. One of the prison guards walked away as he had done at certain times of the day every night. And so finally he felt, this is my chance. And so with one guard looking the other direction, about 15 yards away, Churchill climbed up onto the fence and threw himself over and landed as quietly as he possibly could, but there was a bit of a thud, but he was on the other side. So he just laid completely still so that the prison guard wouldn't suspect anything, and then finally began to maneuver his way away from uh, from the wall. But the moment he hit the ground, he realized, I have made a decision I can't unmake. If I climb back over that wall, I'm as good as dead. I'm on this side now. My decision's done. Now I have to live with this decision. What Luke is doing in writing this passage and in writing this book is trying to lay out for you what the decision will look like if you choose to follow Jesus. 
and he's giving it in all the honest color he possibly can. He doesn't want you to think that following Jesus is going to be a bed of roses. He doesn't want you to think this is the path to a health and wealth life, a life full of health and wealth, in other words. He wants you to know what it's going to look like if you choose to follow Jesus and to realize that when you choose to follow him, it is an irrevocable decision, just like the one that Winston Churchill made. And so in order to achieve this aim of helping you be clear on what it looks like to follow Jesus, he holds out the beautiful truth of this passage. And the truth of this passage is that Jesus is the beautiful Savior who extravagantly demonstrates mercy toward all of your sin. Jesus graciously forgives sinners, is the message of this passage. And the response he wants to evoke from you, the response he wants to promote in your life and and propel you toward, is to express extravagant gratitude toward him for that mercy. This story is here, I think, because it just demonstrates in more color, you know, it's as if we just went from black and white to now there's more hues of gray in the story to now we've got some, some more living color in this story to demonstrate what it looks like from the last passage to reject Jesus on one hand or to believe him for who he is on the other hand. And so he's giving this contrast of responses to the truth of who Jesus is. We saw previously in chapter 7, back in verse uh, 16, people saying in response to the miracles Jesus was working in these various cities, remember he raised a a boy from the dead with his mother and, and a crowd of people watching, and people responded to that saying, a great prophet is among us. And now here we have in this passage, you heard me read and you followed along, this man saying, he's not a prophet. He doesn't even know who this woman is. And so that's part of the context here. Another part is we have people in the last passage who declare God to be right. And we have that in the case of the sinful woman here in this passage. And we have those who are offended by Jesus. Remember, Jesus finished a little parable saying, blessed are those who are not offended by me. And here you have this Pharisee who's inviting Jesus into his home and he is offended by Jesus. So you have these two responses to the same truth. And so what this passage is doing is showing us that Jesus graciously forgives sinners and he calls us then to respond with extravagant gratitude for his mercy. And he shows us three truths about who Jesus is. The first is in verses 36 through 38 and it's simply that Jesus is the friend of sinners. We see that even in the fact that he accepted invitation to the house of a Pharisee. I mean, the Pharisees to this point have been very skeptical of who Jesus is typically very angry about what Jesus has done. And here he is saying, sure, you invite me into your house? Of course, I will come and talk to you and just be myself around you and show you who I really am. And so he walks into this house. And what we probably want to picture here is some kind of a courtyard where people can walk by and see who's in there. And, you know, various people are going to be watching this meal. And as uh, and it says that, that this Pharisee asked him to eat with him and they reclined at table. So maybe what you want to picture is like the spoke of a wheel, and uh, like a, a bicycle wheel. And so you have you know, kind of the hub in the center. That would be the table. And everyone's leaning toward that table, laying on the ground. Uh, this is obviously a different culture, and so I'm just trying to help us picture this. They're not seated, seated at a table necessarily. They're probably laying toward a table. And so they'd probably be, you know, I'm left-handed, so I would probably lean on my right elbow. Sorry, as I knocked the pulpit down. Um, and then be eating with my left hand. 
And everybody else would be leaning toward the table as well, and their feet would be out behind them. And so that's why when it says that this woman came behind him and had you know, easy access to his feet, she wasn't under the table as you would need to be if you came and sat at my house. You would need to get actually under the table with my dog, uh, or at least, yeah, and uh, the scraps of our, of our food nonetheless. And uh, you'd have to be under there to get to my feet. Well, in this case, his feet are out behind him. And uh, that's why she has easy access to his feet. And so Jesus goes in and spends time with sinners. And he's done this over and over and over again in his life. And he's been accused over and over again of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And here he is doing this again. And as he's having this meal with probably a Pharisee as the host and all of his friends, most likely this is just a group of skeptical people around because the Pharisee is going to be inviting other people to investigate who Jesus is. Somebody else walks by, say this courtyard, this probably outdoor area, and notices that Jesus is in there. And it's a woman who evidently, from what we can tell in this passage, has had some previous interaction with Jesus. Why would we say she's had previous interaction? What I believe is that her ministry to Jesus is evidence of previously being forgiven by Jesus not that she's walking in there and asking Jesus to forgive him in that to forgive her in that instant. So perhaps she's one of these people mentioned in a previous passage where, you know, for instance in verse 21 it says in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. Maybe she was one of these people who had been filled with evil spirits. Maybe she's one of these great sinners that that he has blessed and said your sins are forgiven you as he's gone about doing his ministry in the streets of these cities in small villages and towns as well. And so she had been forgiven of great sin, and her reputation preceded her everywhere she went. Everyone knew she was a wicked woman of the city, probably a prostitute. That's what people have believed throughout the the history of the interpretation of this passage, is we're talking about a prostitute here, someone who has ruined her life. And Jesus has said, your sins are gone. Your sins, they are many, and now they're gone. And she is walking by, probably being shunned by everyone in this town because of the fact that her reputation precedes her. And she sees Jesus in there, laying down at this table, reclining at the table, eating a meal, and she's overwhelmed with gratitude. And so she walks in there and begins to minister to him by, uh, by bringing this alabaster flask of ointment, which is just a, a small container that would be easily broken open, um, you know, permanently broken open, full of expensive ointment. And people would say that this, uh, have said that this ointment was probably worth, you know, quite a few months at least, if not years of work in order to, to buy this, this ointment. It would be very expensive ointment, most likely. And she begins wiping Jesus' feet with it and, and, and wetting his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. And all of this is scandalous. If I have to tell you anything more, uh, This is all against the rules. Letting her hair down in public was against the rules. Uh, All of this is, you know, looked upon with great shame in this culture. And that's why this man looks at her, looks at Jesus and says, Yeah, right, you're a prophet. Do you not see what she's doing to you? And even the word for touching uh, in verse 39, this woman who is touching him, probably has some kind of sexual overtones to it, the way it's used in other passages in the New Testament. He's looking at this as being highly indecent. And Jesus is letting it happen. Yeah, right, he's a prophet, is the way that this man thinks about it. 
What we're seeing is that Jesus is the friend of sinners. A pastor named Kevin DeYoung, many of you are familiar with, uh, writes about this idea. He says, was Jesus an easygoing, live and let live kind of Messiah? In other words, what does it mean that Jesus is a friend of sinners? Okay, that's what we're trying to ask. Because it sounds like Jesus is willing to just hang out. You know, if he were alive today, he'd just be going to all the bars and, you know, vaping with people and doing all these things just to try and have opportunities to share the gospel with people. And so Kevin DeYoung says, was Jesus just this live and let live kind of Messiah? What we see from the pas- the, these passages in the New Testament is that sinners were drawn to Jesus and gladly spent, Jesus gladly spent time with sinners who were open to his teaching, that Jesus forgave repentant sinners, and that Jesus embraced sinners who believed in him. Jesus was a friend of sinners not because he winked at sin, ignored sin, or enjoyed lighthearted revelry with those who engaged in immorality. Jesus was a friend of sinners in that he came to save sinners and was very pleased to welcome sinners who were open to the gospel, sorry for their sins, and on their way to putting their faith in him. And so this passage is just demonstrating again and again that Jesus is not coming just to hang out with sinners and do whatever they're doing. He's coming to rescue sinners and dispense enormous dollops of mercy on them. And that's what he's doing in the case of a woman whose reputation preceded her, who was probably shunned by everyone else in the streets on her way into this little courtyard area. And even while she's there, is getting the kind of spirit from everybody laying around this table, reclining around this table. And this does not sit well with the Pharisee who hosted and invited Jesus into this dinner party. And he said to himself in verse 39, if he were a prophet, he would have known who this was. And what we're going to see now in verses 39 through 47 is that Jesus is the true prophet. And again, this harkens back to verse 16, where people were responding to what Jesus was doing by saying, a great prophet is risen among us. And this guy heard that. He's out in the streets. He goes, oh, so he's a prophet. I'm going to have him in my house, and I'm going to investigate for myself. So it doesn't sound like this Pharisee is hosting Jesus because he's thoughtful, because he's a servant, because he just wants to be Jesus' friend, because he's willing to be persuaded by him. He's putting him under the microscope and saying, you show me. I'll be the one who determines who you really are. And he's a skeptic, an ingrateful skeptic at that. But here in verses 39 through 47, we see Jesus prove that he is the true prophet. And so we see this man saying, if he, saying to himself, So it appears this is an internal conversation that he's having. Saying to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is. In other words, a prophet's going to be able to sniff out who the bad people are in the world, right? This is kind of your job to be able to differentiate between right and wrong, good and bad, uh, light and dark, love and hatred. All of these contrasts, if you're a prophet, you can sniff this out. Obviously, by the fact that he's letting this woman do these things, these inappropriate things, like letting her hair down in public around him, clearly he's not a prophet. And Jesus says, let me show you that I am a real prophet by the fact that I'm reading your mind right now. And so he, he says, uh, Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And then he tells him this parable. And what he does is he talks about two different people. And he says, uh, one person owed 500 denarii. That would be basically 500 days of work, all right? So a denarius would be something that, a coin you would get after you finished a hard day's work, working in a vineyard or working in the fields, and you get one of those coins for each day of work. 
500 of those, all right? 500 days of work. Take the weekends out. We're talking basically two and a half, right, years of, of labor, and somebody owes that much? How do you pay that off? How do you even begin to pay that off? You'd have to marry into a family with money, or you'd have to find this enormous treasure buried underground. You know, something's going to have to give in order for you to pay off two and a half years of labor. Then you have somebody else who owes like, what, two months, 50 days of work? And Jesus says, so neither one of them can pay that back, just under great constraints and um, not able to get caught up. And the person who they owe the money to forgives both of them equally. Just both of you have your slates wiped clean. Who's going to be more grateful? Obviously, the Pharisee says, the guy who owed more. And this makes sense to us. Like, this is not rocket science. Uh, My mom's Chick-fil-A in Bolingbrook, where she works, uh, loves her job there, great environment. Uh, One of the reasons is because she has a great boss. And one of the things her boss did for their, their company Christmas party a few weeks ago was... Everyone could, you know, enter a certain number of raffle tickets into various pots, basically. And if you win this one, you get, you know, this gift card to iTunes or whatever. And if you enter this raffle, you'll, you'll get a certain number of tickets to this prize. And one of the prizes was you get a month of your mortgage paid off. You know, this, the boss was going to do this. Like, that's, that's pretty substantial. If you live with your parents and you pay, like, $50 rent to your parents, are you really going to care to enter into that raffle? On the other side of things, if you're working two jobs or three jobs to try and take care of your family, you've got a wife and two young kids at home, you're going to really hope you win that raffle, (laughs) that you get a month of your mortgage paid for you. You can get a month ahead or a month caught up one way or the other. So my mom said she was super excited that the guy who won was this young kind of, you know, family man who's just trying to piece piece things together I'm sure he expressed extravagant gratitude to his boss for paying for a month of his mortgage, as we all would. And so this this makes intuitive sense to us. The person who is forgiven more is going to be more grateful. And that's what Jesus is laying out here. And Simon, the Pharisee, the one who hosted Jesus, who invited him into his home, understood this. He got this. He said, obviously the person who, had the, who owed the larger debt, and Jesus said, you judged rightly. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? She has shown exceptional gratitude. Unlike you, let's just make this obvious here, you're the one who's hosting me, you're supposed to do certain things. So, let's just put this in American context, and you know, maybe I don't even do these things perfectly myself, but when someone walks into your house, what are you kind of supposed to do on a cold winter day? Probably take their coat right? And maybe give them a Kleenex because their nose is running because they just walked into a 70-degree environment instead of a 30-degree environment. And you say, you know, walk into my house, the bathroom's over here, feel free to get a cup of glass of water on the counter, and you just do all these things, and you help them feel like they're at home. And what Jesus is saying is, you did none of that stuff. You're supposed to wash my feet when I walk into your house. And now it's not a guarantee like everyone had to do this, but it was kind of like the accepted social custom. You're going to wash the person's feet off because you're walking around barefoot or wearing sandals and your feet have been trotting through the manure and the dust and everything else out in the street. And so when someone walks into your house, you make them feel at home by washing their feet. You give them a little dab of olive oil to make them feel a little cleaner and smell a little nicer when they walk into your house. 
You didn't do that either. Basically, you dropped all the social customs that you're supposed to do when I walked in. And she went above and beyond, right? You're supposed to give a little oil for my head. She gave a lot of ointment, way more expensive than olive oil would be, for my feet. And so he's showing this contrast that one person, you, did nothing. This person did everything she could possibly do to show gratitude to me and to show that I'm welcome. And so what Jesus is doing is saying, I am the true prophet by even knowing what you're thinking and by knowing who she is. I remember, I met her back on the street. This is probably what, what he's kind of drawing out for this man. And I forgave this woman extravagantly with extravagant mercy. And she's responding to that the way she knows to respond. And if you knew how much I could forgive you, you would respond the same way. He's connecting the dots for Simon this way. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus is the true prophet. In verses 48 through 50, Jesus is the one who forgives sins. Let me back up to verse 47 before we, well, really, I'll just include verse 47 in this point. He's the one who forgives sins. He turns to the woman. He says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. We sang, our sins, which are many, his mercy is more. Her sins are many. These are forgiven. And that's why she loved much. And I want to, you know, ask the question here. Basically, did Jesus um, forgive this woman on the spot here? Is she just now being forgiven? Or is she doing this because she's been previously forgiven? Is she forgiven because she's showing great love to Jesus or is she showing great love because she was forgiven? And I hope that as gospel-oriented people, you know the answer to that just off the top of your head. Obviously, she is showing great love because she has already been forgiven. Jesus doesn't forgive us because we do good things for him. Okay, This would be totally counter-gospel if that's the interpretation of this passage. And several other translations help us understand this and make this clear for us. Such as the Christian Standard Bible that says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. So that's what we know as the CSB. The NIV, which I think some of you are probably looking at right now. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. So she's showing great love because she's been shown great forgiveness by Christ. And so really, this, this passage is making us start to ask this question of what is my attitude toward sin? What's my attitude toward other people's sin? Are there people who are so bad, I don't want to see them forgiven? How about my own sin? How do I view my own sin in light of who Christ is and what Christ has done? What is your attitude toward your sin? Is it kind of a live and let live idea? Like, you know, God loves me, I know that, and so I can just live however I want? No, that's not, that's not how it works. Our own attitude towards sin should be affected when we see Christ's posture towards sin in this passage. And how is your, what is your attitude toward God in light of your forgiveness, in light of how much you have been forgiven? How, what is your attitude like toward, those, uh, toward, toward your own forgiveness? Perhaps someone has committed what you consider to be the unpardonable sin. Whatever that may be, you can fill that in in your own mind. How do we look at people who commit sins that we can't imagine personally committing ourselves? Maybe that's a good test for us to see just how much we think about the mercy of God. I can't imagine that God could ever forgive someone like that. Well, that's not a gospel-oriented perspective on forgiveness and on sin. 
I think what we need to realize is that maybe the, the, the gist of this is God doesn't care about your past. All right? He doesn't care on one end of the spectrum who you've slept with, how much time you've spent behind bars, how much money you've lost at the casino table, how much you stole, what you were or even are addicted to. Those things don't matter to God. And on the other end of the spectrum, he doesn't care how many times you've been kind or how many times you've marched in pro-justice rallies or how much you've given the charity or how hard you've worked to keep yourself healthy or how vegan or gluten-free or dairy-free or anything else free that you are. He doesn't care um, how many days in a row you have read your Bible or how many days in a row you've gotten up early to spend an entire hour in prayer. He doesn't care how many years you've been a member of Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church. On either end of the spectrum, God doesn't care about your past. What he cares about is your attitude toward his mercy. Do you rejoice in his mercy? Or do you say, oh, that person could never be forgiven because they are so bad? What matters to God is that you realize that your past is indifferent to him. He can forgive you of all the sins in your past and in your present and in your future. He can save you no matter how good or how bad you've been. He saves you because you realize you can't save yourself by reading your Bible over and over again or going to church over and over again, as good as those things are. As in the last passage, your responsibility is to say that God is right in his assessment of who he is as the creator and the perfect judge and of who you are. And when you rightly consider your own need, you turn to God as the only one. You turn to Jesus Christ as the only one who can wash your slate clean, no matter how good you think it's, it was, or how bad you think it was. And he gives you the undeserved gift of salvation on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross, paying the penalty you deserve for sin. And all you do to receive that gift is open your hands and say, yes, please, and thank you. That's how we become Christians. That's how we receive the forgiveness of sins. That's why we confessed half an hour ago, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. One of the themes of this passage that maybe surprises us as we think about who has the inside track to God is that we would expect the person who has the inside track to be the Pharisee, the person who's tried to keep all the rules, the person who even invites Jesus into his own home. This is the person who gets, you know, the easier path, the easier access to eternal life. And this passage turns the world upside down again, as Luke has done over and over again, and as he'll do through the end of this book, and as the whole Bible does. You would think the rich, smart people are the ones who get eternal life. And what the Bible does again and again is it says that it it basically turns the world's wisdom upside down. We have these redemptive reversals all through the Bible. And so those who have the inside track to God's kingdom are the people who are humble, the people who recognize their need, the people who see their true heart condition before God, not the person who has the most respectable sins. You know, well, my sin is I'm a little selfish. I'm a little on the selfish side, a little on the greedy side. Those are my sins. That's it. Nothing public, nothing anybody really be able to sniff out. I don't care if you, if you have one sin and it's super respectable. 
That is enough to condemn you to hell. But I don't care if you have a gazillion sins and they're all the worst kind, whatever you want those to be. Jesus can forgive you. And if you've put your hope in him, Jesus has forgiven you. Your sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. This woman's identity was changed when she knew that she was forgiven. Jesus said to her in verse 48, Your sins are forgiven, assuring her again that the mercy he showed to her out on that sidewalk or on that street or wherever it was when she first interacted with him, and here she is showing her gratitude for that forgiveness. What he's doing is reassuring her here, Your sins are forgiven. And then people ask this question, and and really, as you read through Old Testament or New Testament narratives, the last statement of a passage is also, is often, I should say, super important in interpreting it. Like, what's the point of this passage? It's that Jesus is the one who even forgives sins. To take that last question there in verse 49. And Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And the peace that you can have as someone who walks with God is the peace that you know that your sins are forgiven. And this is the peace that everyone in the world wants, whether they put it that way or not. And as I've said before, this is why people go to Mass every single day or pray the rosary or you know, throw fish back into the Ganges River or whatever they do to try and atone for their sins and give themselves a clear conscience at least for a day. And what this passage holds out to you is you can have forgiveness and you can have peace because you know who Jesus is and you know that his mercy is more than your sins. His grace is far greater than your sins could ever be. And so this woman's identity, she's no longer known as prostitute or former prostitute. Her identity is forgiven sinner. I try not to talk about sports too much, but let me talk about sports for a second. A couple of weeks ago, um, Nick Foles, one of the Bears quarterbacks, played and played pretty well. His first time to play all, all year, and Nick Foles is a seminary student at Liberty University Online. And after the game, he was getting hounded by the local media saying, how does it feel to prove everybody wrong? You know, they called you third string quarterback. That was your identity. And he, he's just like, no, that was never my identity. My identity is in Christ. And then he preached the gospel for like five minutes. And they're like, well, weren't you frustrated and angry? And he's like, you know, Philippians 4 says I can be content in any circumstance. And he preached the gospel again. And they kind of stopped asking questions after that. But what I loved was his identity. He knew his identity was not who I play for, where I earn my paycheck, where I grew up, any of that. It's all gone. Your identity is I'm in Christ or I'm out of Christ. And so what we're asking you here at Brainerd is to please Put your hope in Christ alone, not in your performance or in your background or in where your church membership lies. How do we express our gratitude for the mercy that God has shown to us? And I'm just going to give you four ways here. Our love is evident, our our extravagant love in response to God's mercy is evident in the fact that we forgive other people. A forgiven person is the most forgiving person in the world. And so as you think through those who have grieved you and sinned deeply against you, this passage would call you to forgive those people, to realize that if you are truly forgiven, you can be forgiving as well by God's grace. Love 
in response to God's extravagant mercy, pursues other people. This is going to take different shape. Maybe that means that you text somebody throughout the week and say, hey, I'm praying for you. Would you be willing to get together for coffee to talk about the hard things you're going through in your life? Maybe it's going to be that when somebody walks through these doors who's never been here before, you go up to them and you invite them to sit with you and you make sure they have a bulletin so they kind of know what's happening in our service and in the life of our church. But love pursues other people. You don't just live your own life and sequester yourself away and then come back out of hiding once in a while and then go back into hiding. Love pursues other people because you've received such extravagant mercy. Love obeys. Jesus connects these dots over and over again. If you love me, keep my commandments. This doesn't make him love you more. He doesn't love you more or less based on your performance. But the way you show your love for Jesus is by obeying him. And love worships him. That's what this woman was ultimately doing by breaking open an expensive alabaster flask of ointment and using that to cleanse Jesus' feet when somebody else should have already done that. She was worshiping. She was saying, his worth is so much greater than me keeping this flask for later on for my own purposes. So are you marked by forgiveness and taking initiative in spiritual conversations and spiritual relationships and obedient following of Jesus and in worship of Jesus? Winston Churchill managed to survive weeks on the run of dehydration and near starvation and nearly being captured and finally going up to one house um, and, and really finding the only person in within you know, probably a 50-mile radius who was a supporter of British people at that point, and he just happened to stumble upon their house and find shelter from them and safety from them, and on and on. It was a miraculous story, really, of Winston Churchill surviving this, but all this after he laid face down in the dirt, wondering, have I gone too far? Should I have made this decision in the first place? What Luke's trying to hold out for you is, if you've made the decision to follow Jesus, you made the right decision, and so now follow hard after him. Let come all the trials that could possibly come your way. Set aside these doubts and this skepticism and these questions and follow hard after what you know to be true. I believe in the forgiveness of sins we affirmed together earlier. And so now go, show extravagant gratitude for the extravagant mercy you have received. Let's close together in prayer. Our Father, we don't want anybody in this room to know the worst things that we've done. We would all be mortified and never walk back in these doors again if any one of us let our worst sins be known. But you know every single one of them, and you have extravagantly showered us with mercy. So we simply throw our hands up and say thank you for your kindness. And we pray that we would live in light of these truths today. In Christ's name, amen.